I found this incredibly moving. I actually found myself tearing up reading this book, which is very rare for me while reading. And especially a book I've read three times. I think maybe I was thinking a little bit of actual Cormac McCarthy, but even just this moment is so touching. And it's because the man is not without hope at the end. I love that. I love that he finds optimism. So here we go. Friends to episode 275 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Cormac McCarthy's 2006 novel, The Road. So Cormac McCarthy sadly passed away about a month ago, and we figured it was time to revisit his work, sort of dedicate an episode to him, and uh, do that through The Road, which is probably my favorite book I've read from him. I haven't read a lot of his work. So that's not really saying much, but I love this book um, as dark and, and depressing as it can be. Um, this is my third time reading it, and uh, I'm, I'm just stoked to talk to you about it, man. Yeah, love No Country for Old Men and, and the adaptation the Coen brothers did. Just incredible stuff. Getting to go back to Cormac McCarthy, I was I had high, high expectations. And in reading this, I'm so blown away by like how much has been influenced, I think, by this. It's not the first time we've kind of seen a story of a parent and child in this sort of post-apocalyptic environment, but it feels like one that maybe started a trend over the last like 15 years or so. I mean, in some ways it's like, this book isn't that old, right? 2006 is surprisingly new. Like I, I when I first read this, I assumed it was written like 40 years ago, you know, and that yeah. was back closer to the time it was written in. So it kind of feels um, it like felt this- timeless already. It feels like the stand to me a little bit, how yeah. the stand was like, what, the 80s? And it's kind of sure. got that yeah. p- similar kind of vibes with with like, a yeah. you know, something that happened. Post-apocalyptic stuff has been around for a while. He's It's definitely not doing something like completely new here, but it does feel new in a way. It feels like a fable to me, like this dark, people have called it a Gnostic fable. It's an interesting book because I feel like it's really divisive. I know lots of people who pick it up and end up like DNFing it, like it's like can't get through it, you know, for whatever reason. Um, some nature. people really bounce off of his prose and his writing style. Um, it's just really bleak. Um, there's a lot in there that'll like. I know there's one part where uh, it talks about suicide, which this is a good time to say we're going to get into some really heavy topics on this episode, including suicide or um, cannibalism, extreme violence, um, nihilism in general. Uh, just lots of like dark content. Um, so if any of that's going to like upset you, just be aware that's coming. It's not for everybody. Um, and I, I've definitely like, I'm not someone who's going to like shove this in people's faces and say, you got to read the road. Cause I know that like some people are not ever going to like this book and, and that's fine. Um, I just happen to really love it. And I think it has a beauty to it that I was missing. Like I really enjoyed no country for old men, but I remember when we covered that, we, we read that it was like kind of a screenplay that he turned into a novel and to me, it felt like that. And it was super well written. And I remember like having passages I loved, but it didn't strike me as the same like stunning, beautiful prose that I remembered from the road. Um, and so coming back to Mike, oh, yeah, this is why um, I felt that way. It kind of yeah. underlined that that um, take for me again. As it's my first time with him, and I don't mean to compare it to other things, I do want to say things like 
the new God of War now sequel. Uh, both of those kind of have some of this with like a younger, like a son and a, and a father fighting through this kind of stuff. But The Last of Us is another game that turned into a the series. God of War, the guy has said he was heavily influenced by The Last of Us. And The Last of Us, I haven't read in particular Neil Druckmann have, has said The Road, but he's got to, you know. I can't imagine it, I can, that it, it wouldn't It seems one to one to me, like Absolutely. huge influence. This the, You don't get Joel without the man from The Road because no. they are well, cut from the same cloth. And I couldn't help but think, like, you know, the, the scarcity of materials and the way that they're struggling for survival and healing items or otherwise known <laughs> as food in this book. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I definitely saw the influence from the road towards those. Right. And you think of, like, Mandalorian now has this with, you know, Grogu and, and Din. And then you've got, like, Logan uh, yeah. a few years ago where he has sort of a younger companion. And this is, like, I, I've seen a lot of it recently. And, and it is a fun story to tell, but... You know, it's not it's not necessarily new. Like I said, Lone Wolf and Cub uh, is a samurai epic, actually, okay. sort of series that's been around for a long time. Similar kind of thing. Yeah, it, I don't think it's like it's not like he's telling something new with that. And that's a good point to make, because I don't as in comparing it. I think this is my favorite version of this story that I've seen. Really? Because okay. of part of partly because of what you're talking about, the way that he tells the story for one, dreams are so important and the way that you can be so poetic and abstract in dreams in a world that's so bleak. Uh, yeah. That was something that was like every time he would jump into these poetic moments where uh, even the beginning of the book, there's this kind of daydream that he goes that that the father, the man goes into. And it's like imagining like a like a like a beast or dragon or demon or something. Right. That's like supposed to be this embodiment of death that's sort of cha- always lurking. And it's brutal. I've got so many passages that I'd like to read. Um, I don't know if any of them are going to be the same ones you're referencing, but yeah, I mean, there's so many just amazing. When he passed away, I remember people were posting on Twitter, like posting quotes from him, right? And then someone uh, tweeted out, I can't remember who it was, or I'd credit them, but they were like, man, every one of these passages is just fire. It's like, it's the kind of stuff that makes you want to sit, like set the book down and stare out the window for 10 minutes. Well, and often and it's like, because totally it's totally what it's like reading his stuff. And often it's because it's about mortality too and like what it means to be alive and death and how it's coming for all of us. And then and then you came for Cormac McCarthy and a tragic, you know, it's tragic as it comes for everyone. And for, to have the author having this like moment in time where he was thinking about these things and now seeing him passing is it's tragic. It's like we're, we're left behind as the son and he is now the father. Add something to it in a weird way. Yeah. I like, I I like that. That's true. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's uh we're hopefully we're carrying the light, right? Yeah. That's uh, a recurring theme and occurring image. And I was thinking about how um, no country for old men. There's the dream at the end uh, where he's carrying a light out into the darkness and, this book was written around the same time, published a year later. I don't know, like, for sure when it was being written, you know? But that's interesting, right? I don't know if that's, like, a recurring motif throughout all of his work or if that's just, like, an interesting connection between these two books. If yeah. you know, like, you know, let us know in the comments below. Um, oh, which, speaking of, by the way, <laughs> totally uh, podcast-centric, but we are doing video uh, episodes now, if you're listening to this. There's a video version, full video, on YouTube. So if you'd like to subscribe to our YouTube channel, that would really help us. Um, 
trying to try this out as a format and see if people like it. Yeah. Um, and if you're on YouTube, you know, say hello, comment hello in the in the comments. I was thinking this past week. I mean, I've been a fan of YouTube for a long time and I've had thoughts of becoming a YouTuber, but this was officially us kind of <laughs> becoming YouTubers, going from oh podcasters God, to that. YouTubers. There's something weird about saying that. I know, no. I agree. But yeah. especially as a filmmaker like that, that I have a certain, uh, you know. I think it's there's a difference between posting content on YouTube and being a YouTuber. In I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start. Maybe that's doing, not a distinction people want to make, but I'm gonna start doing daily vlogs. I'm gonna start doing <laughs> reaction videos. I'm gonna start doing all. Yeah, of nothing it. against YouTubers. I mean, I, I watch, I watch plenty of them. It's just yeah. like that's not really what I feel like what we do. Um, I think we're always kind of a podcast first. I, yeah, you know, it wasn't you're listening the, to this on audio. You're not missing anything by not watching the video. Yeah. Um, we just wanted to add that e- extra element for people who are interested in seeing our faces for whatever reason. <laughs> sure. Um. But anyway, back to the book. So, um, no, uh, no country for old men. On that episode, uh, specifically the book episode we did on it, we got really into uh, the biography and talking about Cormac McCarthy as an author and a person. Um, so I'm going to do much less of that this time. Talk a little bit about the road and what what went into the writing of it. Um, but I do, I will point you towards that episode if you want to hear about that because I, I highly recommend it. It's a really interesting guy, and um, if you like the road, you're going to like No Country for Old Men. So check that out. Obviously, I've seen the movie, so I had an idea of what we were getting into, but I realized I didn't remember the movie as much as I as I thought I did. And I think I'm sort of blending a lot of movies at this point because the, it is similar. And, and to, to reference another movie that we've covered that this really brought up for me was uh, Children of Men. Different kind of apocalypse there. Yeah, different. But but you get but like dealing with the same loss of hope and loss of humanity and the, the sort of mourning of humanity. And it really clicked for me at the end. I think not to jump ahead too far, but like all of it came together and I was like, wow, these these I think these two stories have some connective tissue. Maybe that's P.D. James. I want to say that book was written first, but I'm not 100 <laughs> percent on my on my dates. I, I wish I had a really good memory like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love that movie, too. Um, I, I would be interested to revisit the film because I've seen the film once. I remember having criticisms for how it portrayed the book, which is clearly like a favorite of mine. Um, returning to the book for the third time now, I just find it even deeper and more to love. I'll be curious to see if I have a similar take watching the movie. Like, am I going to find more? Am I going to find more reasons to like it? Yeah. Um, it, my understanding is it does ch- make some significant changes. So I'm looking forward to talking about that with you next week for sure when we when we tackle the movie. Yeah, Vigo. We'll get Vigo back on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I found myself picturing the man as Vigo a little bit. And yeah. it, it was like, I don't know. I always have mixed feelings about that. When I when I really really love a book and I and then like the adaptation ends up becoming the version I picture and I'm like, do I want to always picture Vigo? Like I'm not against it. I like Vigo, yeah. but I think I Vigo is good casting. I was doing the same thing, and I think in my mind he he fit very well. But yeah, I get what you mean, and it's like I think some people are really good at keeping the two separate. Yeah. Whereas like I, I think if you live definitely... with it for a long time, because like I was good for a while with like Game of Thrones of doing that. Yeah. But then because um, I had been I was like a book fan first that before the show. But like over time, it started creeping in there. And before I knew it, I was, you know, picturing Tyrion as Peter Dinklage. And like I was yeah. like, oh, dang it. <laughs> like it just it just happens. Anyway, uh, just another funny thing. I just read uh, a book called House, The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Clune for this book club I'm in. And it is like the polar opposite of this book. It is uh, about this like 40 year old like gay man who goes out to like he's like a, he like inspects orphanages of magic children to see if they're like if they should continue to get funding 
And he goes and like he meets this found family of magic kids and it's like super sweet and it's fun. It's a portal fantasy. And it's it you know, I just read it, it was this warm blanket of a read, and then I'm like, all right, next up the road. And it was kind of interesting because I felt like I had actually kind of like armored up to where I could come into what can be kind of an emotionally devastating read and feel just like I was ready for it, you know? Like I had, yeah. I had gone to one side of the pendulum and I was ready for the swing. Um and and so you know, if you're worried about about reading something this dark, maybe uh, I recommend reading something like that first. That way you can you can have that going into it, like uh, like armor, <laughs> or sandwich it right. Like read the road yeah. in, the, in the middle of maybe two two other ones. I I couldn't help but think about how our last project was Big Little Lies, and how it was also about like parents who would do anything for their children, and we're like dealing a lot with parents like within the last True. couple projects. And what would you be willing to do, and how far would you be willing to go to protect your kids? And and I mean in very different ways, obviously, but just thought that was interesting to note. There's so much of this book is about that, right? But it, it goes beyond that in that it's it's about, like, what do you do if you're protecting your kid, but you don't believe that they have a future? And that becomes, like, this ongoing question, and he doesn't have a good answer for it. He's like, I don't know, you know, but I'm just going to do it. And um, he's fighting for it. And, and I think ultimately, you know, we'll get to it at the end. I think he does kind of find a, find a piece with it in a way that we can talk about mm. um, where yeah. I, I think this book actually gets a bad rap for being completely hopeless when I don't think it is. I don't know about the movie. I can't remember specifically, but yeah. I wonder if maybe people are conflating the two. If I remember correctly, the movie has like a more depressing ending, but okay. we'll get to that next Yeah, time. I wouldn't agree. I, I think it has, there, there, it's kind of showing the bleak nature and like the brutality and the what human beings are capable, but at the same time, seeing this little boy and seeing like inherent goodness in him and seeing like what the human condition can be, I think, I think is a, a um, you know, kind of a nice sentiment. And then how we end up in this story uh, is it doesn't necessarily feel quite as hopeful. Um, this, this story also kind of reminds me in ways of Station Eleven. Emily St. John Mandel said the road was an influence. Okay. If I remember correctly. Yeah, because just the, the, the way that like you're we're dealing with the psychology of survivors and like what, because realistically, like you said, the story kind of is about, is it, is it worth going on? Like what, what is yeah. it for? Why, why push so hard? Why try to keep surviving? Because yeah. as far as we can tell, it's not the scenario where like in something like the walking dead, there's like other communities that are building up and people are flourishing. We don't get a sign of that really yeah. throughout the entire so, novel. I think, and this is a distinction I also don't hear made enough. This version of Earth, the biosphere is dead. Yeah. Plants, dead. Like Animals, animals gone, yeah. extinct. Like, there is no biosphere. It's ash and clouds and people killing each other for meat. Like, there is, like, it is so bleak. Like, this is the bleakest apocalypse I think I've read. And so to compare it with another, like, green apocalypse like The Last of Us, where it's like, yeah, there's, like, fungal mutants out there, but, like, everything, there's life. Like, you can grow plants, you can make, you can have a community in a way that feels so much harder. Now, we don't know for sure, and I think, like, repeatedly the man doesn't, he has to say, like, he doesn't know what exists elsewhere. Right. He might have his, like, opinions. Um, so we don't know for sure, and I think that's why there's, like, an element you can still kind of hope maybe somewhere there are plants, maybe somewhere there is life. I think that's um, what he's leaning yeah. on is because we do get yeah. indications that there maybe are wolves that we hear or a dog at one point. We heard a dog one time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember so. any wolves. I think they might have been like a metaphorical wolves. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> it's so bleak and it's so 
devastating, but like I love that this book uses that that loss to show us the power of what we have. And so like I, I saw this listed as like one of the most important and influential books on like conservationism and environmentalism. Sure. And I guarantee you Cormac McCarthy wasn't really like planning for that to be the the case. Now, I did listen to his interview he he did with Oprah cuz the man did not do many interviews. And he did say that one of the messages he wanted people to take away from the book is like you know, what we have isn't so bad and maybe we should appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I got to be honest, there was times that there were reprieves for the characters, I think twice. And when those came up, they they sort of enjoyed a few things. I guess I'm trying to st- dance around spoilers a little bit, but they took baths and things like that. And I remember yeah, yeah. before this, like this morning, I was listening to it in the shower and I was like, wow, like this is something that I don't appreciate as often as I should. And this, you know, this story is making me make me think that way. And I, you know, that's what Cormac McCarthy obviously set out to do. These things that we think are just like daily occurrences, you know, be thankful for them. But also like we typically think like, you know, there are less fortunate people than us. Uh, I think about that often, but thinking in these terms where it's like, it's not even just less fortunate, but like some alternate history or some alternate future, you might not have access to anything, food, water, anything. Well, I mean, we hope alternate. The we hope this w- isn't this isn't yeah. the path that humanity is on with, you know, extreme warming and continued uh, climate change that is destroying the world. Now, um, did it's you take- more stark here, right? It seems like some sort of more immediate event. It's not ever defined clearly what it was i always took it to be probably like an asteroid oh interesting i thought i was thinking nuclear nuclear i thought uh, i considered that but like there's never any mention of radiation sure but it doesn't so, take it could have been very far away just ruining the atmosphere depending it on, could have you know, been sure but yeah th- i just feel like if the world was ended by nuclear war yeah i suspect there would be a mention of radiation sure maybe um, but like but you yeah. said, there's like a streaking red light or something like that in a flashback. So I was thinking maybe asteroid. Like he's he's kind of considering like if the 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 asteroid that hit the dinosaurs sure hit us today, it would probably be kind of like this. That actually probably makes more sense than nuclear war. Yeah, now that you think about it, because that's you know the sky being covered in ash, not being able yeah. to see the sun and stars, and it moon. doesn't it doesn't ever go away. Everything's cold. It just kills like seems like ninety nine percent of everything just dies. You're like, oh well, that's how does that compare to like why would it be climate change? But like climate change is a slower version of that, and that's like always the risk and the danger of it. So I always took this to be that like a uh, it just made me really appreciate the natural world. Yeah. Um. And beyond just the natural world, I think he is also mourning the loss of the human world because I think he sees those two things as like intrinsically linked. And as we lose the natural world we see humans devolve and lose their humanity for lack of a better term. Um, and, and he would maybe even say like their connection to God. That's interesting because he's not necessarily a religious man. Um, he said that like, it depends on the day you ask him. And I do think there's a decidedly humanist element to the religion here. And that it seems like a lot of the like ideas of God and morality comes from the man and comes from the people, not necessarily another entity and i think the man throughout the book sort of struggles with this and and you know yeah he prays i think the son prays but also at the same time you there's times where he's thinking like if there is a god i'm not forgiving him or something like that yeah he says show me your neck so i can throttle you or something like that like he's yeah he's mad at him if you do exist you know like that kind of thing um there's just so many great like i have to read some stuff he lay listening to the water drip in the woods bedrock this 
the cold and the silence. The ashes of the late world carried on the bleak and temporal winds to and fro in the void, carried forth and scattered and carried forth again, everything uncoupled from its shoring, unsupported in the ashen air, sustained by a breath, trembling and brief, if only my heart were stone. And that's an early section where the man is like, it's like the many times where he's looking out at the current state of the world, and I feel that lament of like what has been lost, and then him, I love that last line where he says, if only my heart were stone, where it's like, if I wasn't a feeling human being, I, I wouldn't be affected by this, but I am. I think that was one of the most affecting things to me in a story. He's teaching someone morality, right? He's teaching someone to be a good person in a world where the evil people seem to be winning and surviving longer. Um, so yeah. you, Carrying the light, again, he says, you know, being the good guys. Yeah. And again, for what reason? Like, you know, just purely, purely your own morality at that point. On the next page, uh, across from that, there's the line where he says, just remember that the things you put in your head are there forever. You might want to think about that. You forget some things, don't you? Yes. You forget what you want to remember and you remember what you want to forget. Powerful stuff. And And when we see that play out time and again, I think, you know, I love it when, when something is like, yeah, that's a great line, but then it like plays out in the book because time and again we see him trying to not have his boy see stuff he's worried about filling his head up and like what he's going to fill his head up with he's like if you see this site like it's going to be in there forever um and you know that's kind of scary but true right like how that is that is so true like you forget all this great stuff but you'll remember some of the worst shit you ever saw yeah um it'll stick with you and that's just the way our brains work you know in a, a fucked up way yeah, and the boy starts to be pretty desensitized at certain times. Yeah. Like he stops being affected by things, and that's like the cruel reality of it. Like he he knew this was going to happen, and ultimately, like how can you shade him from all of this? It adds so much gravity to the scenes where he sees something, and the man tries to pull him away, but he's like, "I was too slow. I know you saw it, and I'm sorry." Yeah, because he's thinking like that's going to be in there forever now. I yeah. just messed up, and I let him see that, and now that's going to be in there forever. So there were a, you mentioned him saying "I'm sorry," and I couldn't help but realize just how often he was saying "I'm sorry" to the to the boy, and and yeah. like I was thinking about how like there's so many things that you can say to a kid and try to explain to them and all of this, but often he would just default to "I'm sorry," in a way that like he's kind of apologizing for bringing one bringing him into the world, but two like the state of the world that they weren't able yeah. to you know br- give them a better future, and then just "I'm sorry" because. There's almost nothing else you can say at that point. Well, and I think he's kind of apologizing on the ha- on behalf of like everyone who came before, right? Sure. Because it feels like we are complicit in this in some way. Now we don't know because it's like if it was an asteroid, is that somehow human caused? I don't know, but like, yeah, it just seems like he is taking on some of the guilt of of bringing him into this world as it is. Um, and he's like, yeah. And, like, it, it, there's amazing sections of these, like, um, where you get this stark contrast, juxtaposition of imagery, where you'll get, like, um, the section where they're looking at a lake. He says, it made the lake. Before they built the dam, it was just a river down there. The dam used the water, and it ran through it to turn big fans called turbines, and that would generate electricity. To make lights? Yes, to make lights. Can we go down there and see it? I think it's too far. Will the dam be there for too, for a long time? I think so. It's made out of concrete. It'll probably be there a hundred years, thousands even. Do you think there could be fish in the lake? No, there's nothing in the lake. And then right after that, 
In that long ago, somewhere very near this place, he'd watched a falcon fall down the long blue wall of the mountain and break with a keel of its breastbone, the midmost from a flight of cranes, and take it to the river below all gangly and wrecked and trailing its loose and blousy plumage in the still autumn air. That's the kind of stuff where it's like, okay, like he, he'll hit you with this like image that is just so stark, and by comparison of him looking at a lake and just knowing it's dead. There's nothing in that lake. Um, and he's not saying like, oh, think about what we've lost, but it's it's implied, right? Yeah. There's the the scene where he is thinking about kind of his best day where he went fishing. And, the, and yeah. then at one point he thinks about like the the waves are kind of crashing in a certain way that reminds him of, of possibly seeing trout in the river or something like that. Yeah. So I think trout are a recurring image. Um, and there's a particular quote at that's the end of the book <laughs> that I want to spend some time on when we get there. Uh, so we can visit that. But I know the part you're talking about, cause it reminded me of when I was a kid and we would, my family would travel to Maine and we would go out in these like little rowboats and stuff and go fishing on the lake. And it just was so evocative. And, it, yeah. and, and we used to go trout fishing, like all kinds of stuff like that. Like it really yeah. connected with me personally. I, and it, nostalgia is an interesting thing in the story because the, the uh, early on the father, the man decide like kind of cuts ties with his nostalgia. Like he has, yeah. he's holding onto the, the, his wallet and some of these other things. And he, you can see him making an effort to say like, I can't think about the past anymore because it's taking away from us surviving currently. Um, and I thought that that was really powerful because even just the, the, you know, the splashing of the water, the way that it was happening reminded him of these trout and he's like, oh, but there's no trout in that. And, you know, but yeah. just the visual of seeing it, of course, would bring back that memory. You know, there's that part where he lays all the stuff out on the on the road and yeah. then he throws each thing out individually. And then he has the picture of his wife that he decides to discard. Um, and we'll find out why. Let me read this opening uh, bit of plot summary, though. Let's do it. All right. So a father and his young son journey on foot across the post-apocalyptic ash-covered United States some years after an extinction event. The boy's mother, pregnant with him at the time of the disaster, committed suicide some time before. Realizing they cannot survive the winter in northern latitudes, the father takes the boy south along the interstate highways toward the sea, carrying their meager possessions in their knapsacks and in a supermarket cart. The father is suffering from a cough. He assures his son that they are the good guys who are carrying the fire. The pair have a revolver, but only two rounds. The father has tried to teach the boy to use the gun on himself, if necessary, to avoid falling into the hands of cannibals. Okay, so that's just literally the setup of what's going on here. We've already been touching on some of this stuff. But yeah, there's an interesting note there. Like, he's trying to teach the boy, like, you know, if this happens, you got to, like, put the gun in your mouth. And um, the boy's like, okay. But, like, he clearly is, like, would never do it. And he's like, I don't think I could do this. And he's yeah. like, I shouldn't have even asked you to. There's a harrowing scene. They get into a bad scenario, and he, like, actually tells him to put the gun in his mouth and stuff and it's super dark the idea of having to kill your own kid to to forego torture in this case they talk about rape and cannibalism as well as yeah. being potential outcomes um that's just something that unimaginable i don't think anybody I, I i am of the opinion that i don't know that anybody actually could do it now push came to shove i'm sure there are some out there that could but I feel like it's probably happened, man. Can't like, even imagine. I, I, I don't. I don't. I'm not an expert on this stuff, but like, yeah, he keeps thinking a lot about like whether he could kill. Basically, the bright spot in his world, the only thing he's living for at this point. Like, could he? Well, because at that point, he's he's thinking it's an act of mercy. It's yep. it's to spare him a worse fate. 
Yeah, but I'm of like I just think if I was in that scenario, I can't imagine that I don't think that there's some some possibility of rescue or some possibility of escape or something like that. Like it's so final to say it's over. And of course, I've never been through something like that. I've never faced anything like that. But just in theory, it seems like, man, I don't think he could. I don't know if this guy could kill his I don't even know if he could. Like he definitely has thought about it. But like he thinks about it a lot in the book. I think that's the, the conclusion he comes to. And he does have a very bleak outlook on life. And you could argue that perhaps on one hand, his bleak outlook on the world is keeping them safe. But you could also argue that at times it is closing them off from potential, I don't know, other good people maybe even, or just like it's keeping them alone because he finds it safer to be alone. But it seems like there are still some good people out there or at least decent people, and they're very few and far between. And he is so concerned with staying away because he thinks assumes everybody's bad that we never really find out. And the boy is often bringing that up and saying like, well, what if they're good? Like, what if we, maybe we should help them, you know? And he's like, no, yeah. don't help them. And he, you know what I mean? Like he's in he, like, of course, like we get examples of both scenarios where like the man was clearly right. And they were, they were bad people, but then there are other times where it seems like maybe the boy might've been right. Yeah. I think one of the most fascinating things to me throughout the story is the wedge that forms between them because of this exact thing, because the father, the man is seeing every scenario as, Kill or be killed, um, survive at all costs, don't interact with anybody else, survival is better uh, separate than it is risking being together with other people um, and maybe having some some semblance of normalcy. Yeah. And the boy, just of course, is curious. He doesn't have the context of the prior world. He doesn't know what he's missing out on, which is another thing, like the father being so tortured because of the past and seeing that the boy can kind of, in moments enjoy himself you know like sledding in the snow or yeah and i think part of it is like he is lamenting the world that was lost but like the boy has never seen it right so in one sense the boy is looking for goodness and joy in his reality that just this brings up this interesting thing about the the nature of humans and humanity it sounds like if you have no context for good or evil in the what the past was like why I guess he would have gotten a lot of it from his father being like a moral person and trying to do the good, quote unquote, good thing. But how would he know? How is this child so inherently good and and like wanting the best? There is some talk early on about stories, about like reading stories to him and heroic stories stories to each other, heroic stories. So it seems like my my reading between the lines there is that he picked this up from stories. Okay. Um, which, being a storyteller himself, I, 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 it seems like Cormac McCarthy had like a mixed relationship with storytellers, but it seems like he valued it at mm. the very least, and he sees value in it. It is interesting, and I think notable that every book they find in this book, in this book that we're reading, is like bloated and rotten, and he's like, it's like unreadable, and he's like, oh, it's 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 a relic of another time anyway, and it's a promise to a future that no longer exists, and, um. It seems like a lot of the books just kind of represent, again, things that have been lost and don't hold a lot of value in their current situation to him. Uh, we And we talked about this topic with Station Eleven, the idea of like art being important even in an apocalypse yeah. and why that... Kind of the op- kind of the opposite take, honestly. Continues, yeah, continues humanity and continues... Again, what? notable difference, though. The world isn't dead in no, Station Eleven. People died because of a virus. Yeah. The world is still alive. There are still animals. There are still the possibility for recreating... Yeah. society it may be that exists here but it would be a lot harder yeah a lot harder in this first bit i think we get at least one of his dreams and 
I, I want to talk to you about how the man and the boy, the way that the man sees dreams as dangerous because it's, it's like weakening you in some way, mentally weakening you because you're, you're thinking of what's warm and what's safe and what has been, uh, you know, he dreams of the past obviously. And then his son has dreams and he tells his son not to believe in his dreams and not to, you know, fall for them and see them for what they are. Uh, because like I said, I think he thinks that it's just mentally weakening you and it's softening you up for an eventual encounter with somebody who doesn't, you know, care about dreams. He goes or, back and forth on his dreams, right? Like at one point he's like, if you're in danger, you should be like dreaming about danger or you're, or, or you're going to be in trouble. And then like later he's, he kind of goes back on that. I think that's a growth in him though. I think he realizes, yeah. especially as he's getting closer to, he has this cough and it seems like it's getting worse and you think he's, he, he kind of gets to the point where he knows he's not going to be around forever. Yeah. And I think he sort of maybe changes his, his tone on a couple of things as he starts to realize that he might not be around forever. So speaking of the relationship between the, the boy and his father and, and vice versa, um, on that in- interview with Oprah, McCarthy talked a little bit about how this book came to be. And he mentioned that he was in El Paso, Texas for a 2003 visit with his young son. And when he was there, he was imagining what the city might look like 50 to 100 years in the future. He pictured, quote, fires on the hill and thought about his son. He took some initial notes then, but did not return to the idea idea until a few years later while in Ireland. Then the novel came quickly, he said, taking only six weeks to write, which is unbelievable. But I will also say I read that he often would edit books for years. So maybe he drafted it in six weeks. I can believe that. The idea that it came out as perfect as this book in six weeks is a little bit tough for me to swallow. So I want to believe that it at least took him a year or two to, to edit this thing into shape. It's incredible. Like it's written in these like like small chunks that and and like there's no chapter breaks. It's all just these like line breaks, and you get like a few paragraphs usually or some dialogue. No dialogue uh, tags, no qu- quotation marks, very little attribution. He even omits apostrophes. Like if he writes the word can't, there's no apostrophe in there. Like mm. it's it's wild. Like he's getting rid of like isn't no apostrophe. Like he he gets rid of everything he possibly can. It seems like. And the effect makes the the text like a really spare, interesting thing to look at, barren, kind of boiled down, um, and it becomes all about the words. And we've already talked about in 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 the last time we covered him how he doesn't like commas even. He'll use the, use the word and, and it creates this like real rhythm to his to his uh, to his sentences. And like there are sentences that have like eight or nine or ten ands in them. It's wild, yeah. um, and it's very unusual. But like, it's it's bewitching to me in a way as I'm reading it. Yeah, um, it's very cool. It's so starkly different, uh, and like, it's it's bold, right? Like, you're making a decision, and and of course, he wants it to be just the text. But in a story like this, I can't help but think about like stripping away things, and yeah. the idea of convention and what humanity has deemed society has deemed as normal, and writers and authors and editors and everyone with the English language and grammar have decided that how things should go in a story like this being like, well, those things don't matter in the story also like kind of lends itself. And I know that's kind of his style even outside the story, but I can't help but feel that for this one. Yeah, it works so well here. Um, So one other, a couple other points. One other point is that I read that he said that his son is basically the co-author of this book or he credits him as a co-author because he says a lot of the conversations between the boy and the man are almost word for word conversations he had with his real son. Wow. Um, which is interesting, right? Like, so you're yeah. talking about like maybe why some of these 
like where does this come from? Maybe it's just like how his son actually was at that time. Yeah. Um, I believe he was he was older when he had his son. If I remember from the Oprah interview and he was talking about that. So mm-hmm. I want to comment on the fact that it's he got the idea in El Paso, Texas. So I have a friend who lives there and he uh, invited us out. And this is like right before COVID around 2019. We were out there um, actually February of 2020. We were there. And yeah. it's so starkly different from where I'm from. It's like, you know, I'm so used to so much green. It's got more browns and there's it's rocky formations and shrubs in a lot of areas. Beautiful in a very different way. But just the idea of this being called the road and how often they talk about getting back onto the road and following the road and the way that the road represents a path to salvation and also every danger that they encounter, basically. Yeah. And thinking about it in that area and how the roads go forever and there's there's like not a lot around um, in certain, you know, if you get outside the city, there might be large expanses of road with not a lot on the on the outside. And I can't help but think like the imagery, like how that helped form the story and this like it's kind of like desolate in certain areas in the way that it, it continues on and on. And I don't know, I just know kind of knowing that now reinforms how I, how I think about the story because like I can visualize it and having having been there makes it I don't know makes it kind of cool. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about like. Would they have been better off not following the road? <laughs> I kept thinking <laughs> because that because it seemed like a lot of the trouble he gets into is because other people use the road, and I get like it would be much slower to try and travel not following the road. And I think they um, have maps, and he, maybe he doesn't trust himself to navigate yeah. the forests of the of and America. It seems like they're on like a more like a major road, as it seems like to me, or like a series of highways or something. Whereas I'm like, take back roads, take like. As, as far off the beaten path as you can and you're going to be more likely to it seems like whenever they leave the main road they're more likely to find stuff that they can scavenge yep and then they're also much, much less likely to run into like marauders and stuff it seems like to me mm. but maybe he was going for speed because he was worried about literally freezing to death so i get that, that is too. that is part of it yeah i, I think that was I, like the ticking clock is like it felt like it was getting colder and they were constantly at risk of, of freezing to death or starvation so that. yeah <laughs> um i love how he also uses like He'll use like nouns to verb things. <laughs> um, like he says, uh, he has these binoculars, and whenever they look at stuff, he says that they glass blast it. it. Yeah, yeah, that's he cool. would glass the valley, yeah. and I'm like, what? And then like, he does, you know, he loves to do this kind of stuff. It's really cool. It's just like playing with language. It's clever. You know what it means when you read it, even if you've never encountered something like that. He sometimes makes me question whether I whether I know grammatically what's correct or not. You know, I'm like, <laughs> or or if a word's being used correctly, like glass, is that a thing? Is glass uh, another another verb of looking at something? I don't know. You know, he, maybe he I did think a deep he dive. He is fully aware of the like nebulous nature of language. Like, yeah. he's like, I can make it do that. <laughs> it's like if he wants to. He's the master of his own prose, and he, he he employs it in the ways that make sense to him, and, like, we're along for the ride, I feel like. Um, it's impressive. It's inspiring to me, honestly, yeah. as an author. Like, I don't know how he gets away with half of it. It's amazing. Um, and, the, and the answer tends to just be, re- be really, really good. Um, but I'm sure there was a time where he struggled to get away with some of this stuff, and it wasn't until he built up his reputation that he was able to do it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it makes for some really interesting paragraphs and some really interesting reading, so... There's something to be said for that, for playing with language. Um, I'm going to read a section here. It's actually from like more of a, the middle, which we'll get to in a, in a minute. But I, before we get to the middle, because a lot happens in the middle that we're going to talk about. But this is just, I think, an all-timer quote from this book. He walked out in the gray light and stood and he saw for a brief moment the absolute truth of the world. The cold, relentless circling of the intestate earth. Darkness implacable. 
the blind dogs of the sun in their running, the crushing black vacuum of the universe, and somewhere two hunted animals trembling like ground foxes in their cover, borrowed time and borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. And that's another time where he's using a word in a way you would not expect to use it, right? With which to sorrow it. Mm. Um, amazing. Um, and that's one of those you can, like break it down line by line. Um, it's just such a, a, a powerful uh, observation about the state of their universe and um, the nature of, I think, cognition and human sentience and how time and again he he comes back to this idea of like the universe doesn't care the universe is cold and we're just one planet among all these other blind dogs circling the circling the sun and it's going to keep circling for years and years and years long after humanity's long gone and it's just this like weird happenstance that we are here and able to feel an emotion about it and to feel one way or another or to care that we're alive or to care that anyone's alive. And he's, he leans into that so hard of like, it's like the tragedy of being a human is that you're looking out at this world and going like, Oh, it should be better. It should be alive and it should be green. He's like, no, the universe doesn't give a shit. Like it doesn't care about any of this. Nothing is supposed to be anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that, that's why that, that section has just always struck me. Um, because even in a world that's not this uh, bleak, it's like it's interesting to think of it that way and think of it like how like we humans created all this meaning. Yeah. And like truly the inner universe doesn't seem to care. And this is like almost goes against the idea of a god, right? So as we talk about the back and forth nature of this, like this is a very uncaring universe. And it's like if there's any sort of god and meaning, it seems to come from within. Um, all right, let's get into this next section. They attempt to evade a group of marauders traveling along the road, but one of the marauders discovers them and seizes the boy. The father shoots the marauder dead, and they flee the marauder's companions, abandoning most of their possessions. Later, when searching a mansion for supplies, they discover a locked cellar containing people whose captors have imprisoned them alive in order to eat them limb by limb and flee into the woods. As they near starvation, the pair discover a concealed bunker filled with food, clothes, and other supplies. They stay there for several days, regaining their strength, and then carry on, taking supplies with them in a cart. They encounter an old man with whom the boy insists they share food. Farther along the road, they evade a group of whose members include a pregnant woman, and soon after they discover an abandoned campsite with a newborn infant roasting on a spit. They soon run out of supplies and begin to starve before finding a house containing more food to carry in their cart, but the man's condition worsens. All right, so that's like a, a just a, a, a list of things that happen to them on the road here throughout the middle of this book. Um, let's, let's talk about them each in turn because they each has their own revealing bit to it, right? Like the first time that they encounter these marauders, it's kind of the first people they've really interacted with. Mm-hmm. It's the bad guys. They have this diesel truck. And the one guy is like con out to the woods to pee, and they end up they, they end up confront like confronting each other. He tries to grab the boy, man shoots him in the head. Yeah, this is the first time that the boy says too, as far as I can remember, "Are we the good guys?" Like they talk about being good guys and everything, but then the the yeah. son says, "Are we the good guys?" And you're like, 
matter of perspective, my friend. Yeah. Um, I mean, realistically, this was self-defense, so it seems that right. that's the case. But it's the questioning, the boy seeing death in this way yeah. um, and having to confront that. The man makes a distinction with cannibals, like the cannibals are the bad people. And we yep. would never eat. He says we would never eat anybody repeatedly. Yeah. So um, and we see definitely there are times where there are these marauding bands of people who have like slaves and, yep. you know, Babies, Straight they literally the have like dead kind of shit. children, <laughs> children in chains, and yeah, pregnant women yeah. chained up. Clearly, yeah. like they're they're you know using. I mean, yeah. come Sexual to find out, slaves. some super fucked up stuff. Yeah. yeah, which is like what the wife was like worried about. She was saying was going to happen. Um, was one of the reasons why she killed herself. So like, yeah, there's a lot of really dark shit, and like we see evidence of it, right? Yeah. And I can see how it would be so hard. Like you see this a few times, like maybe even just once. It's hard to not assume everybody's like this and like they're all going to be out there trick you and it would be so hard to trust anybody and like but the boy wants to right like he's he's the one part of this man's life where he wants to give people the benefit of the doubt and um after he uses the the gun to actually shoot that guy and he's like clean the brains off of his own kid and he's like worried about like now now my son's seen this and I have to like try and you know he apologizes to him next is the is the mansion so this happens again right where he goes into the mansion and he's like they're starving so he feels like he's like not thinking clearly and he says like i should have seen the signs but i kind of ignored them Mm -hmm. he opens up the cellar and they find these people and then he like gets scared and runs away basically so they don't even really help the people which i think really haunts the boy definitely does and to talk about why exactly like there was someone who had already like had a limb cut off so they were clearly sort of using these people farming out body parts to eat from these people cannibals where yeah. they they get away just in time that some some men the, the and I people think are coming back come home yeah. and and so they're like, almost caught they almost get caught and they're out in the woods nearby and then that night they hear like wailing and screaming of people out there and just like you know the son saw what was happening down there and then yeah. uh, it's not really defined what for sure is happening. I think he, the boy says like, well, he, you know, they were killing them. It seems like at the very least. Um, Kids are smart. Kind though. Of served as a distraction and enabled them to get away. Because I kept thinking like they probably shouldn't have been able to get away. But it, yeah, but maybe that's why they were able to get away. Maybe, yeah. I was thinking, like, uh, whether he saw it or not, I think kids are smart enough to put the pieces together and people underestimate what children see and what they internalize. Uh, so that was an interesting moment. And and I love the juxtaposition that we get very quickly of yeah. they go down into a cellar and they find one of the most horrific things you can find. And then the father goes down into the next cellar that they find and finds, like, a paradise. And the way that yeah. his reaction... The bunker. the bunker. The reaction to the sun, the sun's up above kind of worried about coming down and the, the dad has to say many times he's terrified yeah, yeah. many times the, he's, he's like come down like come down come down and the, the dad's like almost crying i think he might be crying from joy yeah. and, and just like can't believe their luck at having found this and it doesn't it's not lost on me that cormac mccarthy put like really really difficult things to see and deal with and and like confront and then there would be a buffer or some kind of like um moment of of rep- a reprieve or like uh, salvation and these mo- and these maybe they weren't safe but they did find all the supplies yeah. they could need there's a, a a line i didn't write down but i remember and it was it was something to do with like when they were checking yet another house mm. and he's he he's like we got to go upstairs and check to see if there's anybody up there if there's anything up there we can use the boy's like don't go up there i don't want you to go up there yep. and it's this thing where like time and again it's been bad and then the man says something like um we have to we we have to check it and we don't want to be surprised for one and then it's like 
part of what makes us the good guys is we have to keep trying. And if we stop trying, then we're not going to be able to make it. Like, you have to keep trying, even if sometimes it's terrible and sometimes it's good. Um, and, and I like that message because we see that time and again. There's so many times where it's like, talk about, like, the the man being brave, right? Of being like, I'm going to try this, even though it might be terrible, but I have to keep trying. Otherwise, I'm not going to find what I need to to be able to survive. And it's like part of what it would take to survive is the willingness to, like, take risks yeah. at time to... to you know, hope that you find something good. And yeah, that moment where he's even just when he's like going to open it, I think the boy like freaks out and he's like, all right, we're going to sit here for a while and we'll talk. And there's so many times where he's patient with him and he's like, we're just going to sit here and like, we won't even talk about it. We'll just sit for a while. And then after a while, he's like, all right, so, you know, I'm going to open it and here's why. And like, he's able to like, he's really patient with him. And I think that's like a really endearing part of it to me. Yeah. More yeah. often than not, he's just super patient with the. I with can't the help but think about Kratos from God of War since we already made the, the distinction <laughs> and the connection because he is, he has those moments of like, he has reasons why he wants things done a certain way. He's like very firm with the boy in both cases, the man here and Kratos and the way that like they will fly off the handle because they're like the risk, the alternative to them doing the right thing is either one or both of them dying and, and like the, they won't stand for that. These moments when they're in like the bunker and there's another one later, uh, this mirrors a lot of other apocalyptic stories where they get to some checkpoint or something where it seems safe. <laughs> it's like temporarily safe. And all you wish for is for them to be able to live out their days and here and just like enjoy yeah. this wealth of resources. But you know, it's not safe. And every time it happens, I, I'm, I think it's important to note that the man is like, I almost wish we didn't find this. I wish we found, obviously he, they needed the resources so that they could survive, but it makes their journey of going back into the snow and being back in that brutal world even harder to continue yeah. on because they get, softer from that the moment of being able to be vulnerable and be well and also even darker is like he it seems like he's kind of like we're, we're inevitably going to fail so it'd probably be better if we just died sooner yeah and this this prolongs it like mm. that's another like side to that thought that, that is like because he he repeatedly has this like fatalistic thought of like it's just a matter of time before yeah. i'm gonna die or i'm gonna have to shoot him and that's the way this is going to end. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I noticed about I noted about the bunker is like I felt like they left that thing way too fast. They were only there for like a few days. Agree, but like. but I get it. Like, it, you know, you're tempting. I think fate. it's what you were talking about. He didn't yeah. want to become too accustomed to it. Yeah, you're also tempting fate with like you know what's the chances that somebody doesn't stumble upon this along this around yeah. the same time. Now I'm the kind of person who would fucking bunker. Like I would bunker down, man. I would I would be if like the skies in that, like that that thing. Try and make yeah. it as hard to find as possible, and like yeah. Now, yeah, your food's not going to last forever, but you ration it, you know, and like yeah. just try and like hold out. I don't know why, but that's probably what I would do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense, right? You'd find a friend who has the, who was a prepper, it sounds like. But he's being, they have this like pull, right? Like he wants to go south. He wants to take the boy to the ocean. It seems like, yeah. um, he seems like he's called for a certain reason. He thinks that's going to, for yeah. some reason, be better, but he's not I even think sure it's why. a good thought. I think that like, I would, I would agree with it. Like when he kept saying, go to the coast, I was like, I mean, it makes sense, right? They're more yeah. than likely fish. There's maybe, you know, you might not have to deal with this cold. He says there might be a squid somewhere deep in the, in the, in the depths. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, th it's a good idea. I mean, it's better than being yeah. out in the middle of nowhere, I guess. So w the next one I think is really interesting. There's this man, this old man who's walking and pushing the cart. And to me, this was one of the lowest like literary moments of the book. Yeah. This old man and they, he, he doesn't want to help him at all. But the boy is like, no, no, we, we're going to help him and like convinces him to give him food. 
and then they talk for a while and they have like this really interesting back and like forth like philosophically about like what it is to be alive and like to have hope and whether or not you should they talk about god um, and they talk about god yeah. and the nature of existence yeah um and and you know i thought this was a really interesting part um it, it did feel the most literary to me but you know i still really liked it because i'm like how is this how is this old man alive and he asked him too he's like how are you how did you survive and he's like people give me things and he's like they do and he's like no yeah so it's like, <laughs> i love how, how they get possible he's like he <laughs> lies about his name he says he's 90 he's like he's like Eli, yeah. which is also a very like biblical name right right yeah I don't know yeah. the significance, unfortunately. I don't. I'm not. Well, isn't there the Book of Eli like that movie? I thought that was referencing something from the Bible. I don't know. I'm not like a bit. It definitely person. was, but yeah, I don't know what the Book of Eli is. Is my point? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> it's a movie with uh... <laughs> Denzel. Denzel, and thank yeah. you. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, it's cool to like kind of slow down and then have someone else to bounce these philosophical ideas off of in the story because otherwise it was just the man and the boy up to this point and then a bunch of people who seem dangerous that they sh- should stay away from. Um, and this, you know, this reminds me of a different type of person who could survive, right? Like manipulative almost, like like trying to maybe. make people feel, yeah, maybe, we really don't know, but I assume that this is yeah. a somebody who is, who is uh, looking for pity and it sounds like he's been through it one way or another. It sounds like he has gone through. But he keeps saying, like, I bet you want this. And he's like, OK, like he's he's never like I never asked for anything. It's all just kind of given to him because the boy wants to give it to him. Is, is there like some some religious reading of this book where this is like an angel or God or something like that? Maybe. Or I don't know. I bet there's a lot of some theories, metaphor. Though, right. Like, yeah. Is this Cormac McCarthy himself? Like, is this is this the version of the man who didn't have a son? A son, yeah. And like, was this what he would have been like? Is, yeah, it's like a di- it's a different because he has like a different outlook on the world. Like he seems he seems truly nihilist. He's like none of this matters. Yeah, I'm just walking because like he he doesn't have a reason for anything. He doesn't want anyone to know he was there. That's yeah. why he doesn't give him a, a real name. He's like, yeah. then someone could like know it was me. And yeah, like, you can't <laughs> prove it was me. Anything I say, you can't prove it was me. Basically, if you don't know my yeah. name. Uh, so but then so he doesn't want to leave a trace, even though yeah. he is existing. It's yeah, and one strange. of the most interesting things is that right at the end of this, this character goes and dies. So, like, what is that saying about him? Well, it he, seems we don't like see him went, die. We just we the assumption they, is he's going to die. No, oh, okay. he, they they part ways. And I thought the as they like, left, he was like he's going to die. Well, he says he's going to die, and and yeah. he's like, yeah, he's going to die. But like, he should have died a long time ago, and yet he's still walking around. So True. I'm like, not confirmed. Maybe he's off to the next book. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> you you made me really think about something too, like this version a version of the the man that doesn't doesn't have a kid, and the way that yeah. even if you're like, and you see this a lot in apocalyptic stories, and specifically the sort of lone wolf and cub uh, scenario, where the character is very very fit for survival, the character probably could do better on their own, but the the child is their reason for continuing on because without them, they probably wouldn't have had the drive to go on, and they would have either killed themselves or just you know, caught themselves lacking at some point. And thinking about that dynamic, I think is why people want to tell a lot of these stories, yeah. right? It's like this character that seems like they are completely capable in all scenarios, but then becomes weakened and vulnerable because they care so much about this kid. Um, and then ultimately like are willing to do anything, are willing to sacrifice themselves. Um, I, you know, interesting. And then, and then also to give them the motivation to continue on. So There's a part where it's something that I think his wife had said, is what he's remembering. Could be wrong about that. But he, he it's this thing where he's like, if someone doesn't have 
um, a child or someone to protect, they better go ahead and dream something up and start treating it like it's a person who needs to be protected and start talking to it because otherwise they're going to like not be able to survive. Yeah. Like it's like essential to the, ne- the need to survive. But it's interesting because I think that comes up before we meet this guy who doesn't seem to have anyone and has, has survived somehow. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I love that like all this stuff is like given as if it's a truth, but then we often see something that kind of undermines it. The last little part there we can just touch on because it's I think the grossest, most stark image from the entire book, and that's the the newborn that has been cannibalized. Um, that's the thing that that'll is something stick that with... has stuck with me. Yeah. Talk about something that's going to stick in your head forever. Um, you read that and you're like, well, never going to forget that moment. And that's like the one thing that I will always remember about this book. Like a lot of the beautiful passages I will always remember. But that one is quite harrowing. I uh, was going to say the exact same thing. I think I was in the process of saying I that's the thing that's going <laughs> to stick with me from this book. I, you know, the imagery and the thought that they saw the group beforehand and the woman was yeah. pregnant and that it seems that they... He doesn't like necessarily connect those dots, but they're connectable. Yeah. yeah it's um, really dark. It's super dark. And that's the that's the hardest part, I think, to read for sure. Which then leads us again into a scenario with a bunker of, of types. They get to this farm. Yeah. And again have a, a reprieve and again they cut their hair, that kind of thing. I think this time actually they do some clothing. Oh, that's a, yeah, because there's a couple different that was at the barn and then there's the house where they yeah. They just find these moments. It's like that was the house that like the boy had spotted and it was like off the road. And he's like, oh, that's why that there's some food here that hasn't been touched. And that's yeah. when I was like, you need to leave the damn road. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, all right. So let's get to this final paragraph here. The pair reach the sea where they discover a boat that has drifted from shore. The man swims to it and recovers supplies, including a flare gun, which he demonstrates to the boy. The boy becomes ill. When they reach the beach while the boy recovers, their cart is stolen. They pursue and confront the thief, a wretched man traveling alone. The father forces him to strip naked at gunpoint and takes his clothes together with the cart. This distresses the boy, so the father returns and leaves the man's clothes and shoes on the road. The man has disappeared. While walking through a town inland, a man in a window shoots the father in the leg with an arrow. The father responds by shooting his assailant with a flare gun. The pair move further south along the beach. The father's condition worsens. And after several days, he realizes he will soon die. The father tells the son that he can talk with him after he is gone and that he must continue on without him. After the father dies, the boy stays with his body for three days. The boy is approached by a man carrying a shotgun. The man tells the boy he and his wife have a son and daughter. He convinces the boy he is one of the good guys and takes the boy under his protection. Um, and I have a couple passages to read here at the end, but, um, yeah, just initial thoughts on this ending. Cause like they, they arrive at the beach and it feels like this big moment, but they get there and it's not blue. And he like apologizes to the boy. I'm sorry. It's not blue. Huge gut punch there. Um, I kind of, you know, like I alluded to, I kind of thought that they were going to find some sense of the world continuing here at the beach, but there's like tons of bones of fish and uh, all over the place. And that kind of confirms that this world like there is no escaping this in this world the the of course the ocean wouldn't be blue because the sky is completely covered by a gray ashy cloud well there's just ash everywhere like that's the most recurring image is the ash and the Mm -hmm. black and the soot and the gross (laughs) like it's just everywhere and it's in everything it's the snow isn't white the snow is gray like everything's covered in ash and i think that you can drop lines to say that the the man is 
you know, got some sort of cancer or something in the lungs because of the ash also too. Like it seems like. Yeah. Whether it's cancer or like, yeah, just some sort of inflammation of the lungs that is like going to kill him or I don't, I don't know. Like there's a lot of different lung conditions you can get. That makes yeah, me think that infection. like. Yeah. And that makes me think that like no one's long for this world you know if if you're having to to breathe that in at all times like they wear these yeah, masks yeah everybody else is wearing masks most of the time yeah. they encounter them but the man's not wearing a mask yeah so, so maybe that's a mask thing maybe, maybe we should have been a wearing lesson. a mask yeah maybe it's a good lesson <laughs> for those of those of you who are us work. <laughs> who don't want to wear masks yeah they do yeah. work um interesting <laughs> to think about the son getting there being devastated and then them seeming like they were still he still the man still had the drive to continue on he still was finding supplies they were still going to find a way to keep going in some way who knows what their destination would have been but the tragedy of obviously him getting shot with this arrow uh yeah kind of feel like i could see the obviously like this kind of ending coming but the fate of the son i, I had no idea what we were gonna, what was going to happen with him because he's so young you kind of felt like if this took place over a few years and he got to develop into like a young teenager or something, he could fend for himself. But the reveal that this boy has placed his, his trust in goodness throughout the whole story. And it was ultimately right. Uh, is, you know, I think the reason why you can walk away from the story feeling like Cormac McCarthy was writing a story about like perseverance and like the human spirit rather than yeah. just bleak sort of brutal story. I think there are some elements. I'm going to read a couple passages that, that back that up, in my opinion. I, well, here, here's we we're talking a lot about the difference between the boy and the man, um, and the, here's a section that I think really highlights that. So this is after they got robbed. Um, their, their cart got taken. They catch up to the guy. They take all their stuff back, and the man makes him strip naked, and they leave. And then this is the boy trying to convince him to go back. He was just hungry, Papa. He's going to die. He's going to die anyway. He's so scared, Papa. The man squatted and looked at him. I'm scared, he said. Do you understand? I'm scared. The boy didn't answer. He just sat there with his head bowed, sobbing. You're not the one who has to worry about everything. The boy said something, but he couldn't understand him. What? he said. He looked up, his wet and grimy face. Yes, I am, he said. I am the one. And then, like, the next paragraph, they're going back. So, like, that convinces them, right? And I yeah. love that because it's like the boy has taken it upon himself. He like he recognizes in his in his father like what survival is doing to him and how it's hardening him and making him not care. And when he's saying like I am the one who has to worry about everything, he's talking about worrying about like being a good person still. Well, continuing on too, I think the son's starting to realize that the dad's not going to be there forever, and he's like, I have to worry about these things when you're gone. I'm going to be the one who's left around. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so that starts to build this finale, which is, is a lot of like the, the man starting to realize, like, I'm not going to be around forever. What am I leaving behind? What is the point of all of this? What are we doing? I think that brings us basically to the end here. The man decides, like, I can't go on. And they stop. And he has they have this back and forth, this conversation um, while he's like at death's door, essentially. And um, I found this incredibly moving. I actually found myself tearing up reading this book, which is very rare for me while reading. Yeah. Um, and especially a book I've read three times. I think maybe I was thinking a little bit of actual Cormac McCarthy, but even just this moment is so touching. Um, and it's because the man is not without hope at the end. I love that. I love that he finds optimism. So here we go. Do you remember that little boy, Papa? Yes, I remember him. Do you think that he's all right, that little boy? 
Oh, yes, I think he's all right. So this is referencing earlier in the book, for a moment, the boy saw another little boy who ran off, and he wanted to go find him, and and he was like, no, we can't do that. It's a trap. It'll lead to bad people, and we got to go. And that's what I was talking about, where like maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. So that's who he's referring to here at the end. So it's something that the boy has been continuing to think about. He says, oh, yes, I think he's all right. Do you think he was lost? No, I don't think he was lost. I'm scared that he was lost. I think he's all right. But who will find him if he's lost? Who will find the little boy? Goodness will find the little boy. It always has. It will again. Those end up being his last words. So I think um, clearly he's talking about his boy here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And yeah. I think that shows that that little boy, whether initially or not, is now become like a stand-in it's it's like what the boy can project onto and say like what if he gets lost and he's talking about himself like i'm lost now yeah and he's saying goodness will find you and to me that's that's like a moment of faith almost um and 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 hope when you wouldn't have expected it necessarily from this character but like everything that has happened has brought him here and i think he's maybe these moments of hope like you've talked about seeing the boy having joy and Somehow, throughout this like terrible journey, he's found this right. I absolutely think it's a, it's growth in the character over time. And and what can you feel at the end? I mean, you could choose to feel despair, but you you raised this this child through the apocalypse and taught him all the things that you thought that you could, and you did your best. And so I think he wants to think that goodness will find him and that he will be a positive change in the world. So you know, and, and like hope continues with, with his son, with that generation. Like maybe they do find a way to rebuild the world or something, or re- at least find, I don't know, vegetation and animals. Like there, maybe there's but something he doesn't, else out there. He doesn't see this. He dies before this other guy shows yeah. up who seems to be maybe a good guy. It seems like probably a good guy. Yeah. The man never sees that. He's going off of like his just belief that goodness will find him. Which and more he's often choosing than not, to believe that at the end. Yeah, and more often than not than not in this story, as far as we've seen, that is not the case. So for him well, to choose to believe I think in it's goodness, notable yeah. he has a bullet here, right? Yeah. So if he really didn't believe it possible, he probably yeah. would have ended the boy's life, but he doesn't. Again, coming back to that idea of like that final thing of killing your child versus like who knows like he he chooses to not do that and let the letting go of that and saying maybe maybe despite it all maybe having hope yeah and so there's also a lot of imagery at the end where the boy is like surrounded by light Mm. and there's even like it seems like other characters see things in the boy like they're seeing a god or they're seeing the light of the boy there's a couple of like you can kind of read it as almost magical moments yeah. Um, he sees the the light around his son as he's like looking at him through the fire. And he's like, there's a moment where he says, um, he lay watching the boy at the fire. He wanted to be able to see. Look around you, he said. There is no prophet in earth's long chronicle who's not honored here today. Whatever form you spoke of, you were right. So that's him equating like holiness and like saying that all the religions of the world are talking about like this moment. Um, and, and there's this interesting blending of like the holy and the divine with the human that happens throughout this book um, that, you know, I think is, is quite notable. Um, there's another part, actually, that I want to talk about that, that reminds me of. So this is a part where uh, there's a word here that I read that Cormac McCarthy is responsible for bringing back into usage. It hadn't wow. been used before this, basically this book. It hadn't been used in like hundreds of years. <laughs> So here's the passage. 
says, He got up and walked out to the road, the black shape of it running from dark to dark. Then, in a, then a distant low rumble, not thunder. You could feel it under your feet, a sound without cognate and so without description. Something imponderable shifting out there in the dark, the earth itself contracting with the cold. It did not come again. What time of year? What age, the child? He walked out onto the road and stood. The silence, the solitaire drying from the earth. The mud-stained shapes of flooded cities burned to the waterline. At a crossroads, a ground set with dolmen stones where the spoken bones of oracles lay moldering. No sound but the wind. What will you say? A living man spoke these lines. He sharpened a quill with his small penknife to scribe these things in slow or lamp black. At some reckonable and entabled moment, he is coming to steal my eyes, to seal my mouth with dirt. This is a kind of mysterious passage to me. Um, I read this multiple times going like, what is he saying here? Um, and one of the things that kind of unlocks it a little bit is looking up the solitter word um, where he says the solitter drying from the earth. And it's essentially a, a word I, I read that was used um, in like the 1700s. And it was to mean, and I'm summing up, it was essentially to mean like the, the, like the holiness and divineness and godliness of reality. And it's like essence in the earth itself. And mm. so he's talking about that essence drying from the earth as he's looking out like that is leaving. And that totally lines up with everything we've been reading about this book. But I just think it's so fucking badass that he like brought some word like that and was like, I'm gonna put it in my book. <laughs> and that's <laughs> why it. I say before, like, I don't trust myself to say, oh, he's doing this incorrectly or he's doing this correctly. Because a lot of the time while I'm reading it, I'm like. This person, like you just said, he brought back something from a hundred years ago or more. He knows so. what he's several hundred years ago. He knows what he's doing, and he's doing exactly. it on purpose. Whether he's or not you agree purpose. with it, that's yeah. you know up to, for debate. But like he's doing it on purpose. I think that's yeah. that's safe to say. Yeah. Um. And yeah, that's just like another one of those moments of just like powerful language. And like you could read that. I could read that passage over and over again and try and figure out like what exactly he's saying about the ceiling of the mouth and the eyes and. It's it's very interesting, right? It's it, a lot of this yeah. comes back to him repeatedly looking out, and that's the other thing I was mourning, right? As we lose the man, the man to me is also the the striking, beautiful prose that we get throughout the book is from the man. And right. I know it's Cormac McCarthy, like in a, in a meta sense, but like in the text of the book, these are the man's thoughts. Mm. And so him dying is tragic to me too, because like he had this mind that was looking at reality in such a profound way that it's tragic to lose that. Yeah. And, you know, that that is another thing that is being lost in this world is, like, thoughtful people who are even sorrowing reality as it, as it fades away, right? Um, and it's not just the natural world, it, but it's also that. He is a striking figure to me. It's somebody that I would like to read more of. And like you say, like, maybe I want to know what his early career was so, like. So, um... One of his most famous books, Blood Meridian, yeah, is, I've heard of that one. they've announced an adaptation is in the works for. And it's been attempted several times, and I think it never actually panned out. So we'll see if this one happens. But I can't remember who the director is. We can maybe look into it more for next time. Seems like it has mo more momentum behind it than I've heard in the past. Um, I, would be, I would be excited because I've never read Blood Meridian. And I know that's a lot of people consider that his masterwork, actually. Wow. So 
Cool. I think it's earlier, like an earlier book than this too. Yeah, and it's impressive. Like I said, this is kind of my favorite version of this kind of story. I, I like when we're able to get the literary with the sort of fantasy sci-fi. What what we're getting here is is genre. Sort of genre, genre, sure. I, I don't think you would love that, but <laughs> I tend to agree with you. Yeah, I don't care. Um, yeah, I mean, is, like yeah. my my novel that I'm querying right now is a post-apocalyptic book, mm-hmm. um, and you can't. I feel like you can't have read The Road and write a book that is post-apocalypse and like not think about it and be influenced in some way. Now, sure. mine's tonally very, very different than this, um, and there, you know, there's a lot of ways that it's different from this, but like you can't help but have it influence you in some way. Um, and I'm sure and clearly. Did. That's the case for a lot of content that we've talked about, a lot of yeah. a lot of stories and films and and video well, games. Certainly one way that it did affect me is in the mourning of the loss of the natural world um, and the destruction of it and and seeing that as as like the worst fucking outcome. <laughs> um, and and um, I think that is is what the message of the road is like what lasts with me. And I think that's the reason, as we talk about the very ending here, as we get to the very end, of what this book returns to, right? So the boy is picked up by this guy. We see him a couple times. Like he, he actually wraps the, the man in a blanket. Like he says he'll do it and then he does it. And then he doesn't know the boy's going to go back to what he does and sees that he followed through. So there's like a couple things that makes me want to trust this guy. Yeah. Um, he mentions that he has a boy and a girl. Um, and then we do get a, sign, a, a a paragraph where they return and the boy is talking to this woman, talking about God, talking to his father in his memory and mm-hmm. having conversations with him. So that's where like the story itself seems to end there, right? But then we have one more paragraph and it is one of my favorite paragraphs of fiction ever. Um, and I think it, it, is, it is totally a thematic paragraph. It doesn't really seem to have anything to do with, like, the plot, but I just fucking love it, and it's the end of the book. I'm going to read it. Once there were brook trout in the streams in the mountains. You could see them standing in the amber current where the white edges of their fins wimpled softly in the flow. They smelled of moss in your hand, polished and muscular and torsional. On their backs were vermiculate patterns that were maps of the world and its becoming, maps and mazes, of a thing which could not be put back, not be made right again. In the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of mystery. And I just love that things that can't be put back. It, 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 is, it, is, it is saying, like, this stuff, if we lose it, it's gone forever. Mm. And th- even something as simple as, like, brook trout, right? Like, that's what we end this book on. But, like, it's been an image that's come back up several times, like you mentioned, it's come up a few times where we've looked, thought about fish and thought about these trout and his memories. Um, and this is after the man's dead, but like we just get this section where it's just so perfectly sums up that that sense of loss. Um, and it drives that message home to me. And it's, a you know, obviously it's a metaphor for like what we're dealing with with climate change and the loss yeah. of species and things like that. But ultimately the loss of human beings, people as they pass, we just lost Cormac McCarthy. Like you said, we lost his art. And like in the ways that we can't get that back, but it did exist in the way that it'll affect us going forward. And yeah, I, I mean, that's how I kind of interpret the end as far as like, that's how I'm contextualizing it now that he's passed in the way that like this, yeah. this book is so interested in exploring death as a concept and like to have him pass and to have all these thoughts of him thinking of what it would be like. And now he's taken that journey and, you know, it's sad to see him go, but we'll continue to live on through his stories. 
and I keep thinking about how he was a man, like he loved science and he was, you know, connected to the Santa Fe Institute, I think it was. And he, he knew a bunch of scientists. I think his brother was a physicist and he, science was like a big passion of his and things he thought about a lot. And so I, I was just thinking about how these fish and they're talking about their, their, their patterns, right. And how it tells the secrets of the universe and they have mystery to them and how like we are all manifestations of the universe and ultimately whatever truth there is about reality is like not only manifested in us people, but even in something as simple as the fish, like hold the secret truths and, and how like if you start to look at the world that way, you can, you can really start to value it in a way that I think unfortunately not enough people do. All right. I think this is a good place to, to end this. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on YouTube. That would be a great thing for our channel. Um, if we can hit, I think, a thousand subscribers, we might even be able to monetize in some way, which would be kind of cool. Um, yeah. You know, we're a small podcast, and we would love any other new avenue for uh, for revenue. Would be great. Um, also, if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts or on uh, Spotify or any other uh, podcast host where you can leave a rating and review, we'd love to get one of those. Let us know that you listened to this episode on Cormac McCarthy and the Road. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of the platforms. I think we're probably even on threads nowadays. And I'm on uh, threads at least. TikTok. And I talk about the podcast on there. Maybe I'll, yeah, maybe I haven't made one yet for the, for the actual Ink to Film account, but maybe I will. Anyway, find us wherever we're at and interact with us. And yeah, like make sure to like this video and share it around. Absolutely. And if you'd like to support us monetarily, uh, we, we would greatly appreciate that. We have a Patreon where we do monthly bonus episodes where we do other adaptations for past projects. We also do like one-offs and experimental stuff on there. We'd love to have you on there to support us for as little as two, two bucks a month. You get those bonus episodes and you get to vote on projects. So if there's anything like particularly you'd love to hear us cover, that's a good way to get uh, get that message to us. That is patreon.com slash film. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Uh, I'm excited to get into this movie next week and, and compare it to this. As you could probably tell, it's going to be a tough one for me to uh, for me to pick the movie over this book that I love so much. But I'm going to try and go into it with an open mind, and uh, and we'll see. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, it's a movie I don't remember very much, but I, uh, you know, after reading this, I can't wait to see what the adaptation's like. I like Vigo a lot, so let's get into yeah, it. Yeah, me too. All right, until next time. Keep adapting.